We're nearing the end of this book, so I wanted to remind you about the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed, where you can get ad-free access to the entire bookshelf. Before our next free book begins, we'll be taking a short break, during which we'll release a few episodes exclusive to the premium feed. So if you want a continuous stream of sleepy content, be sure to sign up. There's a seven-day free trial, so you can try it out and see if you like it before committing. Just follow the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. In just a few clicks, you'll have the premium feed in your podcast player of choice. If premium isn't for you, then don't worry. We'll be back soon with a brand new book to bring you sweet dreams. Thank you so much for your listenership and support. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. I'm so glad you could join me tonight. This evening, we are reading the last episode of Journey to the Center of the Earth. I really hope you've enjoyed this geological adventure. Let me know on social media or email me via the website www.sleepybookshelf.com Before we begin tonight, Let's take some time here to recenter. Take a big stretch where you are and feel the tension release from your muscles. Today is over, and all that matters is that you get the rest you deserve to take on tomorrow. Let's take some nice deep breaths to help you settle in. Take a deep inhale, imagining all your worries and concerns are being sucked into a little cloud. And then exhale, watching that cloud drift away. The last time we were together, the lost travelers were being swept through the rocks in the center of the earth with no source of light or concept of time. Harry had already noticed they had no food provisions, but had decided to keep this to himself. He then fell into a fretful sleep and dreamt of a giant, ape-like monster chasing them and destroying them. He was awakened by his uncle, who noted they were ascending in the tunnel. When Harry revealed at last that there was no food left, they found just one morsel of dried meat and some stale biscuit. Facing starvation, Harry began to think about home. He recollected once as a boy in Germany getting stuck in the chimney of an abandoned castle while trying to retrieve a rare bird's egg 
He was there for two days before his uncle rescued him. But that fearful experience was nothing in comparison to this. The heat around them was increasing. Hans produced a half bottle of Scheidem gin, which they shared with the remaining scraps of food. And so, we pick our story back up tonight. The adventurers, without food or hope, the increasing heat, and the water around them boiling. So, just try to relax and lie back as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 42 The Volcanic Shaft Continued An invincible dread had taken possession of my brain and soul. I could only look forward to an immediate catastrophe, such a catastrophe as not even the most vivid imagination could have thought of. An idea, at first vague and uncertain, was gradually being changed into certainty. I tremulously rejected it at first, but it forced itself upon me by degrees with extreme obstinacy. It was so terrible an idea that I scarcely dared to whisper it to myself. And yet, all the while certain as it were, involuntary observations determined my convictions. By the doubtful glare of the torch, I could make out some singular changes in the granitic strata. A strange and terrible phenomenon was about to be produced in which electricity played a part. Then this boiling water this terrible and excessive heat, I determined as a last resource to examine the compass. But the compass had gone mad. Yes, wholly stark staring mad. The needle jumped from pole to pole with sudden and surprising jerks, ran round, or as it said, boxed the compass, and then ran suddenly back again as if it had the vertigo. I was aware that, according to the best acknowledged theories, it was a received notion that the mineral crust of the globe is perpetually undergoing the modifications caused by the decomposition of internal matter the agitation consequent on the flowing of extensive liquid currents, the excessive action of magnetism which tends to shake it incessantly at a time when even the multitudinous beings on its surface do not suspect the seething process to be going on. Still, 
This phenomenon would not have alarmed me alone. It would not have aroused in my mind a terrible, awful idea. But other facts could not allow my self-delusion to last. Terrible detonations, like artillery, began to multiply themselves with fearful intensity. I could only compare them with the noise made by hundreds of heavily laden chariots being madly driven over a stone pavement. It was a continuous roll of heavy thunder. And then the mad compass, shaken by the wild electric phenomena, confirmed me in my rapidly formed opinion the mineral crust was about to burst. The heavy granite masses were about to rejoin. The fissure was about to close. The void was about to be filled up. And we, poor atoms, were about to be crushed in its awful embrace. Uncle, I said, We are wholly, irretrievably lost. What then, my young friend, is your new cause of terror and alarm? He said in his calmest manner. What fear you now? What do I fear now? I said. Do you not see that the walls of the shaft are in motion? Do you not see that the solid granite masses are cracking? Do you not feel the terrible, torrid heat? Do you not observe the awful boiling water on which we float? Do you not remark this mad needle? They are every sign and portent of an awful earthquake. My uncle coolly shook his head. An earthquake, he replied in the most calm and provoking tone. My nephew, I tell you that you are utterly mistaken. Do you not, can you not, recognize all the well-known symptoms? I replied. Of an earthquake, he said. By no means. I am expecting something far more important. My brain is strained beyond endurance, I replied. What do you mean? An eruption, Harry, my uncle said. An eruption, I repeated. We are then in the volcanic shaft of a crater in full action and vigor. I have every reason to think so, said the professor in a smiling tone. And I beg to tell you that is the most fortunate thing that could happen to us. The most fortunate thing. Had my uncle really and truly gone mad? What did he mean by these awful words? What did he mean by this terrible calm, this solemn smile? 
We are on the way to an eruption, are we? I said. Fatality has cast us into a well of burning and boiling lava, of rocks on fire, of boiling water filled with every kind of eruptive matter. We are about to be expelled, spit out of the interior of the earth, in common with huge blocks of granite, with showers of cinders, in a wild whirlwind of flame, and you say it is the most fortunate thing which could happen to us. Yes, replied the professor, looking at me calmly from under his spectacles. It is the only chance which remains to us of ever escaping from the interior of the earth to the light of day. It is quite impossible that I can put on paper the thousand strange, wild thoughts which followed this extraordinary announcement. But my uncle was right, quite right, and never had he appeared to me so audacious and so convinced as when he looked me calmly in the face and spoke of the chances of an eruption, of our being cast upon Mother Earth once more through the gaping crater of a volcano. Nevertheless, while we were speaking, we were still ascending. We passed the whole night going up, or, to speak more scientifically, in an ascensional motion. The fearful noise redoubled. I seriously believed that my last hour was approaching. And yet, so strange is imagination. All I thought of was some childish hypotheses or other. In such circumstances, you do not choose your own thoughts. They overcome you. It was quite evident that we were being cast upwards by eruptive matter. Under the raft, there was a mass of boiling water, and under this was a heavier mass of lava and an aggregate of rocks which, on reaching the summit of water, would be dispersed in every direction. That we were inside the chimney of a volcano, there could no longer be the shadow of a doubt. Nothing more terrible could be conceived. But on this occasion, instead of snaffles, an old extinct volcano, we were inside a mountain of fire in full activity. Several times I found myself asking, what mountain was it, and on what part of the world we should be shot out, as if it were of any consequence. In the northern regions, there could be no reasonable doubt about that. Before it went decidedly mad, the compass had never made the slightest mistake. From the Cape of Sacknusum 
we had been swept away to the northward many hundreds of leagues. Now the question was, were we once more under Iceland? Should we be brought forth onto the earth through the crater of Mount Hecla? Or should we reappear through one of the other seven fire funnels of the island? Taking in my mental vision, a radius of 500 leagues to the westward, I could see under this parallel only the little-known volcanoes of the northwest corner of America. To the east, one only existed, somewhere about the 18th degree of latitude, the Esk, upon the island of Jan Mayen, not far from the frozen regions of Spitsbergen. It was not craters that were wanting, and many of them were big enough to spew out a whole army. All I wished to know was the particular one towards which we were making with such fearful velocity. I often think now of my own folly, as if I should ever have expected to escape. Towards morning, the ascending motion became greater and greater, if the degree of heat increased instead of decreasing as we approached the surface of the earth, it was simply because the causes were local and wholly due to volcanic influence. Our very style of locomotion left in my mind no doubt upon the subject. An enormous force, a force of several hundreds of atmospheres, produced by the vapors accumulated and long compressed in the interior of the earth, was hoisting us upwards with irresistible power. But though we were approaching the light of day, to what fearful dangers were we about to be exposed? Instant death appeared the only fate which we could expect or contemplate. Soon a dim, sepulchral light penetrated the vertical gallery, which became wider and wider. I could make out, to the right and left, long, dark corridors like immense tunnels from which awful and horrid vapors poured out tongues of fire, sparkling and crackling, appeared about to lick us up. The hour had come. Look, uncle, I said. Well, what you see are the great sulfurous flames, he replied. Nothing more common in connection with an eruption but if they lap us round, I replied. They will not lap us round, was his quiet and serene answer. But it will be all the same in the end if they stifle us, I remarked. We shall not be stifled, he said. 
The gallery is rapidly becoming wider and wider, and if it be necessary, we will presently leave the raft and take refuge in some fissure in the rock. But the water, which is continually ascending, I despairingly replied. There is no longer any water, Harry, he answered, but a kind of lava paste which is heaving us up in company with itself to the mouth of the crater. In truth, the liquid column of water had wholly disappeared to give place to dense masses of boiling, eruptive matter. The temperature was becoming utterly insupportable, and a thermometer exposed to this atmosphere would have marked between 189 and 190 degrees Fahrenheit. Perspiration rushed from every pore, but for the extraordinary rapidity of our ascent, we should have been stifled. Nevertheless, the professor did not carry out his proposition of abandoning the raft, and he did quite wisely. Those few ill-jointed beams offered, anyway, a solid surface, a support which elsewhere must have utterly failed us. Towards eight o'clock in the morning, a new incident startled us. The ascensional movement suddenly ceased. The raft became still and motionless. What is the matter now? I said querulously, very much startled by this change. A simple halt, replied my uncle. Is the eruption about to fail? I asked. I hope not, he answered. Without making any reply, I rose. I tried to look around me. Perhaps the raft, checked by some projecting rock, opposed a momentary resistance to the eruptive mass. In this case, it was absolutely necessary to release it as quickly as possible. Nothing of the kind had occurred. The column of cinders, of broken rocks and earth, had wholly ceased to ascend. I tell you, uncle, that the eruption has stopped, was my oracular decision. Ah, said my uncle. You think so, my boy. You are wrong. Do not be in the least alarmed. This sudden moment of calm will not last long, be assured. It has already endured five minutes. Before we are many minutes older, we shall be continuing our journey to the mouth of the crater. All the time he was speaking, the professor continued to consult his chronometer and he was probably right in his prognostics. Soon the raft resumed its motion, 
in a very rapid and disorderly way, which lasted two minutes or thereabout, and then again it stopped as suddenly as before. Good, said my uncle, observing the hour. In ten, we shall start again. In ten minutes, I asked. Yes, precisely, he answered. We have to do with a volcano, the eruption of which is intermittent. We are compelled to breathe just as it does. Nothing could be more true. At the exact minute he had indicated, we were again launched on high with extreme rapidity. Not to be cast off the raft, it was necessary to hold on to the beams. Then the hoist again ceased. Many times since, I have thought of this singular phenomenon without being able to find for it any satisfactory explanation. Nevertheless, it appeared quite clear to me that we were not in the principal chimney of the volcano, but in an accessory conduit where we felt the countershock of the great and principal tunnel filled by burning lava. It is impossible for me to say how many times this maneuver was repeated. All that I can remember is that on every ascensional motion, we were hoisted up with ever-increasing velocity, as if we had been launched from a huge projectile. During the sudden halts, we were nearly stifled, During the moments of projection, the hot air took away our breath. I thought for a moment of the voluptuous joy of suddenly finding myself in the hyperborean regions with the cold 30 degrees below zero. My exalted imagination pictured to itself the vast, snowy plains of the arctic regions, and I was impatient to roll myself on the icy carpet of the North Pole. By degrees, my head, utterly overcome by a series of violent emotions, began to give way to hallucination. I was delirious. Had it not been for the powerful arms of Hans, I should have broken my head against the granite masses of the shaft. I have, in consequence, kept no account of what followed for many hours. I have a vague and confused remembrance of continual detonations, of the shaking of the huge granite mass, and of the raft going round like a spinning top floated on the stream of hot lava amidst a falling cloud of cinders, the huge flames roaring, wrapped around us. A storm of wind which appeared to be cast forth from an immense ventilator roused up 
the interior fires of the earth. It was a hot, incandescent blast. At last, I saw the figure of Hans as if enveloped in the huge halo of burning blaze, and no other sense remained to me but that sinister dread which the condemned victim may be supposed to feel when led into the mouth of a cannon. At the supreme moment when the shot is fired and his limbs are dispersed into empty space. Chapter 43 Daylight at Last When I opened my eyes, I felt the hand of the guide clutching me firmly by the belt. With his other hand, he supported my uncle. I was not grievously wounded, but bruised all over in the most remarkable manner. After a moment, I looked round and found that I was lying down on the slope of a mountain, not two yards from a yawning gulf into which I would have fallen had I made the slightest false step. Hans had saved me from death while I rolled insensible on the flanks of the crater. Where are we? asked my uncle dreamily, who appeared to be disappointed at having returned to earth. The eiderdown hunter simply shrugged his shoulders as a mark of total ignorance. In Iceland, said I, not positively, but interrogatively. No, said Hans. After all the innumerable surprises of this journey, a yet more singular one was reserved to us. I expected to see a cone covered by snow, by extensive and widespread glaciers in the midst of the arid deserts of the extreme northern regions, beneath the full rays of a polar sky beyond the highest latitudes. But contrary to all our expectations, I my uncle and Hans were cast upon the slope of a mountain calcined by the burning rays of a sun which was literally baking us with its fires. I could not believe my eyes, but the actual heat which affected my body allowed me no chance of doubting. We came out of the crater half-naked, and the radiant star from which we had asked nothing for two months was good enough to be prodigal to those of light and warmth, a light and warmth we could easily have dispensed with. When our eyes were accustomed to the light we had lost sight of so long, I used them to rectify the errors of my imagination. Whatever happened... We should have been at Spitsbergen, and I was in no humor to yield to anything but the most absolute proof. After some delay, 
the professor spoke. It really does not look like Iceland, he said in a hesitating kind of way. But supposing it were the island of Jan Mayen, I ventured to observe. Not in the least, my boy, he replied. This is not one of the volcanoes of the north, with its hills of granite and its crown of snow. Look, my boy. Right above our heads, at a great height, opened the crater of a volcano from which escaped from one quarter of an hour to the other with a very loud explosion, a lofty jet of flame mingled with pumice stone, cinders, and lava. I could feel the convulsions of nature in the mountain, which breathed like a huge whale, throwing up from time to time fire and air through its enormous vents. Below and floating along a slope of considerable angularity, the stream of eruptive matter spread away to a depth which did not give the volcano a height of 300 fathoms. Its base disappeared in a perfect forest of green trees, among which I perceived olives, fig trees, and vines loaded with rich grapes. Certainly this was not the ordinary aspect of the Arctic regions. About that there could be not the slightest doubt. When the eye was satisfied at its glimpse of this verdant expanse, it fell upon the waters of a lovely sea or beautiful lake, which made of this enchanted land an island of not many leagues in its extent. On the side of the rising sun was to be seen a little port, crowded with houses, and near which the boats and vessels of peculiar build were floating upon azure waves. Beyond, groups of islands rose above the liquid plain so numerous and close together as to resemble a vast beehive. Towards the setting sun, some distant shores were to be made out on the edge of the horizon. Some presented the appearance of blue mountains of harmonious conformation. Upon others, much more distant, there appeared to be a prodigiously lofty cone among the summit of which hung dark and heavy clouds. Towards the north, an immense expanse of water sparkled beneath the solar rays, occasionally allowing the extremity of a mast or the convexity of a sail bellying to the wind to be seen. The unexpected character of such a scene added a hundredfold to its marvelous beauties. 
Where can we be? I asked, speaking in a low and solemn voice. Hans shut his eyes with an air of indifference, and my uncle looked on without clearly understanding. Whatever this mountain may be, he said at last, I must confess it is rather warm. The explosions do not leave off, and I do not think it is worthwhile to have left the interior of a volcano and remain here to receive a huge piece of rock upon one's head. Let us carefully descend the mountain and discover the real state of the case. To confess the truth, I have both hunger and thirst. Decidedly, the professor was no longer a truly reflective character. For myself, forgetting all my necessities, I should have remained still for several hours longer, but it was necessary to follow my companions. The slope of the volcano was very steep and slippery, We slid over piles of ashes, avoiding the streams of hot lava which glided about like fiery serpents. We are in Asia, I said. We are on the coast of India, in the great Malay Islands, in the center of Oceania. We have crossed the one half of the globe to come out right at the antipodes of Europe. But the compass, said my uncle, explain that to me. Yes, the compass, I said with considerable hesitation. I grant that is a difficulty. According to it, we have always been going northward. Then it lied, he said. To say it lied is a rather harsh word, was my answer. Then we are at the North Pole, he replied. The Pole? No. Well, I give it up, was my reply. The plain truth was that there was no explanation possible. I could make nothing of it. Happily, after two long hours' march, a beautiful country spread out before us, covered by olives, pomegranates, and vines, which appeared to belong to anybody and everybody. In any event, In the state of destitution into which we had fallen, we were not in a mood to ponder too scrupulously. What delight it was to press these delicious fruits to our lips and to bite at grapes and pomegranates fresh from the vine. Not far off, near some fresh and mossy grass, Under the delicious shade of some trees, I discovered a spring of fresh water, 
in which we voluptuously laved our faces, hands, and feet. While we were all giving way to the delights of newfound pleasures, a little child appeared between two tufted olive trees. Ah, I observed, an inhabitant of this happy country. The little fellow was shy, and just as the boy was about to take to his heels, Hans ran after him and brought him gently back. My uncle, too, tried to look as gentle as possible, and then spoke in German. What is the name of this mountain, my friend? He asked the boy. The child made no reply. Good, said my uncle with a very positive air of conviction. We are not in Germany. He then made the same question in English, of which language he was an excellent scholar. The child shook its head and made no reply. I began to be considerably puzzled. The professor then made the same demand in French. The boy only stared in his face. Then I must perforce try him in Italian, said my uncle with a shrug and repeated his question once more. Again, the boy remained silent. My fine fellow, do you or do you not mean to speak? Asked my uncle. The boy was silent yet again. Perhaps I will try another question, my uncle remarked. Turning to the child, he asked in Italian, What is the name of this island? Stromboli, replied the little shepherd before dashing away from hands and disappearing in the olive groves. Stromboli. What effect on the imagination did this word produce? We were in the center of the Mediterranean, amidst the eastern archipelago of mythological memory, where Aeolus kept the wind and the tempest chained up, and those blue mountains which rose towards the rising sun were the mountains of Calabria and that mighty volcano which rose on the southern horizon was Etna, the fierce and celebrated Etna. Stromboli, I repeated to myself. My uncle played a regular accompaniment to my gestures and words. We were singing together like an ancient chorus, Ah, what a journey. What a marvelous and extraordinary journey. Here we had entered the earth by one volcano, and we had come out by another, and this other was situated more than 1,200 leagues from Snaefels and the country of Iceland, 
the wondrous changes of this expedition had transported us to the most harmonious and beautiful of earthly lands. We had abandoned the region of eternal snows for that of infinite greenery, and had left over our heads the grey fog of the icy regions to come back to the azure sky of Sicily. After a delicious repast of fruits and fresh water, we again continued our journey in order to reach the port of Stromboli. To say how we had reached the island would scarcely have been prudent. We should have been called demons, vomited from the infernal regions. It was therefore necessary to pass for humble and unfortunate shipwrecked travellers. It was certainly less striking and romantic, but it was decidedly safer. As we advanced, I could hear my worthy uncle muttering to himself, The compass, the compass most certainly marked north, and is a fact I cannot explain in any way. What the fact is, said I with an air of disdain, we must not explain anything. It will be much easier. I should like to see a professor of the Johannium Institution who is unable to explain a cosmic phenomenon, said my uncle. It would indeed be strange. And speaking thus, my uncle, half naked, his leathern purse round his loins and his spectacles upon his nose, became once more the terrible professor of mineralogy. An hour after leaving the Wood of Olives, we reached the fort of San Vicenza, where Hans demanded the price of his thirteenth week of service. My uncle paid him with very many warm shakes of the hand. At that moment, he did not indeed quite share our natural emotion, he allowed his feelings so far to give way as to indulge an extraordinary expression for him. With the tips of two fingers, he gently pressed our hands and smiled. Chapter 44 The Journey Ended this is the final conclusion of a narrative which will be probably disbelieved, even by people who are astonished at nothing. I am, however, armed at all points against human incredulity. We were kindly received by the local fishermen, who treated us as shipwrecked travellers. They gave us clothes and food. After a delay of 48 hours, on the 30th of September, a little vessel took us to Messina, where a few days of delightful and complete repose 
restored us to ourselves. On Friday the 4th of October, we embarked in one of the postal packets of the Imperial Messageries of France, and three days later, we landed at Marseille, having no other care on our minds but that of our precious but erratic compass. This inexplicable circumstance tormented me terribly. On the 9th of October, in the evening, we reached Hamburg. What was the astonishment of Martha? What the joy of Gretchen? I will not attempt to define it. Now then, Harry, that you are really a hero, she said. There is no reason why you should ever leave me again. I looked at her. She was weeping tears of joy. I leave it to be imagined if the return of Professor Hardwick did or did not make a sensation in Hamburg. Thanks to the indiscretion of Martha, the news of his departure for the interior of the earth had been spread over the whole world. No one would believe it, and when they saw him come back in safety, they believed it all the less. But the presence of Hans and many stray scraps of information by degrees modified public opinion. Then my uncle became a great man, and I the nephew of a great man, which at all events is something. Hamburg gave a festival in our honor, a public meeting of the Johannium Institution was held, at which the professor related the whole story of his adventures, omitting only the facts in connection with the compass. That same day, he deposited in the archives of the town the document he had found written by Saknusum and he expressed his great regret that circumstances, stronger than his will, did not allow him to follow the Icelandic traveler's track into the very center of the earth. He was modest in his glory, but his reputation only increased. So much honor necessarily created for him many envious enemies. Of course, they existed, and as his theories, supported by certain facts, contradicted the system of science upon the question of central heat, he maintained his own views, both with pen and speech, against the learned of every country. Although I still believe in the theory of central heat, I confess that certain circumstances hitherto very ill-defined may modify the laws of such natural phenomena. At the moment when these questions were being discussed with interest, my uncle received a rude shock 
one that he felt very much. Hans, despite everything he could say to the country, decided to leave Hamburg. The man whom we owed so much would not allow us to pay our deep debt of gratitude. He was taken with nostalgia and love for his Icelandic home. Farewell, said he one day, and with his short one word of adieu, he started for Reykjavik, which he soon reached in safety. We were deeply attached to our brave Ida Duck Hunter. His absence will never cause him to be forgotten by those whose lives he saved, and I hope at not some distant day to see him again. To conclude, I may say that our journey into the interior of the earth created an enormous sensation throughout the world. It was translated and printed in many languages. All the leading journals published extracts from it, which were commentated, discussed, attacked, and supported with equal animation by those who believed in its episodes and by those who were utterly incredulous. My uncle enjoyed during his lifetime all the glory he deserved, and he was even offered a large sum of money by Mr. Barnum to exhibit himself in the United States. While I am credibly informed by a traveler that he is to be seen in a waxwork at Madame Tussaud's, but one care preyed upon his mind, a care which rendered him very unhappy. One fact remained inexplicable, that of the compass. For a learned man to be baffled by such an inexplicable phenomenon was very aggravating, but heaven was merciful, and in the end, my uncle was happy. One day, while he put some minerals belonging to his collection in order, I fell upon the famous compass and examined it keenly. For six months it had lain unnoticed and untouched. I looked at it with curiosity, which soon became surprise. I gave a loud cry. The professor who was at hand soon joined me. What is the matter? He asked. The compass, I said. What then? He pushed. Why, its needle points to the south and not to the north, I replied. My dear boy, you must be dreaming, said he. I am not dreaming, I told him. See, the poles are changed. Changed, he said with incredulity. My uncle put on his spectacles, examined the instrument, and leapt with joy, shaking the whole house. 
a clear light fell upon our minds. Here it is, he said as soon as he had recovered the use of his speech. After we had once passed Cape Sacknusum, the needle of this compass pointed to the southward instead of the northward. Evidently, I replied, our error is now easily explained, said he. But to what phenomenon do we owe this alteration in the needle? Nothing more simple, I answered. Explain yourself, my boy, said he. I am on thorns. During the storm upon the central sea, the ball of fire which made a magnet of the iron in our raft turned our compass topsy-turvy, I said. Ah, replied the professor with a loud and ringing laugh. It was a trick of that inexplicable electricity. From that hour, my uncle was the happiest of learned men and I the happiest of ordinary mortals. For my wonderful Gretchen, abdicating her position as ward, took her place in the house in Königstrasse in the double quality of niece and wife. We need scarcely mention that her uncle was the illustrious Professor Hardwick, corresponding member of all the scientific, geographical, mineralogical, and geological societies of the five parts of the globe. End of the Voyage Extraordinaire